Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist and a best-selling author who spent over 35 years teaching people the key lessons from psychology and contemplative practice that lead to a good life. It's great to be here, as usual, with my pops. So, Dad, how are you doing today? Pretty good, sons. <laughs> sons. <laughs> I, I'm trying to figure out how to transition out of that now. <laughs> I, victory! Sons. Yay! Oh, I rattled my, my son, who's normally cool and calm <laughs> like a cucumber. Oh, jeez. All right. So, anyway, what I was going to say is that If you live in the United States, and probably for many people who don't, it's been a bit of a stressful week. Um, I certainly am in cortisol overdrive. I'm sure many other people are. There's been a lot to take in. Many people have been dealing with some pretty complex feelings of different kinds. And this feels like a pretty good opportunity to talk about relaxation and anxiety, what we can do to kind of weather the storm when things get tough, and perhaps even framing and taking in the year as a whole in a lot of different ways. So how have things been for you, Dad? It's been uh, personally actually revelatory in some ways. And maybe I'll share a a few sort of personal takeaways, you know, that that have actually aided me in coming to a softer, calmer landing. And it's also been really striking to appreciate the ways in which so much of what we can be understandably morally invested in or really care about at the I'll call that the global really important stuff and I think both are really important to pay attention to but I think it's really important to keep focusing on the local because that's what's going to have the most impact on yourself and those immediately around you in the day-to-day effect in other words, the little things like how you do, do you do the dishes? What food do you buy? How do you talk with other people? Uh, the efforts you make every day to progress in caring for your family or caring for your job, the books you choose to read, whether you choose to meditate, whether you maintain some exercise, whether you look out the window uh, and just take a big breath, that's the local. And uh, we can become sometimes hijacked by the global. And I think given my psychoanalytic roots amongst other roots, the language of withdrawing the libidinal cathexis. That's some discourse, right? Just <laughs> I have no idea what that friends. means. What the heck does that mean? <laughs> it's, it's a quasi-psychoanalytic Freudian term. Uh, it's the notion that libido loosely is just energy and attention. You know, I think Dan Siegel has a, a lovely sort of rap, you know, rap verse, essentially, where attention flows, energy goes, right? So, and a cathexis is basically where we attach or glue our libido to, for better or worse. So we could make a libidinal cathexis with our precious son or something like that. And one of the terms that I think maybe even Jung introduced was this notion that part of the growth process sometimes is to withdraw a libidinal cathexis we've made with things that are just not good for us, or we tried hard, but that dog will never hunt, you know, that ground will never raise a good crop of corn. You just got to move on. And I, speaking for myself, I have had massive libidinal cathexis into political media over the last three, four years. And you've been among the few, maybe the many who have counseled me to disengage, <laughs> withdraw the libidinal cathexis, dad, stop watching the news. Right? Quit checking your phone for political Twitter, something. So I've definitely had a lot of libido cathected with the global. Mm. And that that's okay. I, I learned a lot. I, I clarified a lot. I got it. But for me, at least, there's kind of a turning point here where I want to stay informed enough so I can be moral in my actions as a member of a community, which at the largest mm-hmm. scale is a nation and then a, a world. But beyond that, you know, it's kind of like, okay, okay, I understand why I was so preoccupied. Mm. And now I'm withdrawing the occupation. You know, I want to get that occupation out of my mind stream to some extent. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I've definitely been an advocate for that uh, in your life and also just openly on the podcast and the conversation that I had with Celeste and with other people talking about, you know, the value is in what you're actually going to derive benefit from, right. to state the obvious thing. And when we fall into consuming things that are highly stressful as our form of entertainment, mm -hmm. that's where I think people start to run into some problems, like where the energy becomes over-invested. Of course, we want to invest energy in the causes that we really care about and mm. in the things that we want to do in the world, the positive change. We want to create all that good stuff. So the question is, are you using it as a positive outlet to create the change you want to see in the world? Or is it just a form of kind of negative preoccupation, as you're describing, where yeah. the consumption of it is stressing you out past the point from which you can derive any benefit from it. Or you can derive benefit that helps anyone else, to put it that kind of way. I mean, we've talked uh, long on this podcast about how we are more effective as change agents in the world, affecting things in positive ways, if we are also confident and calm and steady and so on inside of ourselves. And I mean, I think that the last week has been just like such a metaphor for that on so many different kinds of levels, the efforts of many people to create the change that they wanted to see, the positive results from that change in the minds of those people, certainly being frank in my mind, and just in general in a lot of ways how there are going to be these phases of intense anxiety and stress and consternation in the lives of people. And part of our job as kind of developed humans is to be able to weather those times as effectively as we can and to also give ourselves some grace, I think. Like, it's okay to be stressed. It's okay mm. to be worried. It's okay to be anxious. These are natural, normal human feelings. They're going to come up from everyone. They don't mean that you're like not a sufficiently developed human if you were really freaking out over the last week. It just means that you care and it's yeah. okay to care about things. So I guess that's kind of my my little summary of what you were saying a second ago. Yeah, it's being thoughtful about where we allocate our attention and energy. Mm. Uh, most people have fundamentally a lot of control over and freedom with regard to where they choose to allocate their attention and their energy. And that's good news. It means that we have choice there much of the time. Yes, there are certain things that compel attention, compel energy, understandably, right? Your house is burning, you, that compels your attention and your energy. But most of the time, the house is actually not burning down in this moment. And my language of withdrawing libidinal cathexis, <laughs> reallocating your libidinal cathexis is really about the simple thing of, you know, basically, as the Buddha talked about a long time ago, essentially, where do you dwell? I think about that a lot. Where do you dwell uh, in terms of attention and energy, or to put it a little differently, what dwells within you? And where we allocate our attention, our attention and energy is the front end of who we are becoming. It is the front end of internalizing what will increasingly dwell within us. And mm -hmm. as you point out a lot, it's that space where we have a freedom to choose between stimulus and response. And I've thought a lot about uh, two big dwelling places that are really toxic for people. Uh, one of them is helpless outrage, and it's easy to dwell there. Another one is contemptuous grievance, aggrieved contempt. And both of them are really bad for people. And that, to me, is both of them are examples of, to build on the metaphor from the Buddha, second darts. In other words, as you said really correctly a moment ago, it's natural sometimes to feel shocked or angry or sorrowful or really deeply worried or this uneasy dread in the pit of your stomach about where you're, fill in the blank, where your health is going, where your marriage is going, where your country is going. Okay, that's the first start of life. It's natural to feel that. And we don't need to get angry with ourselves or overreact to the fact that that's what our experience is in the moment, right? Then there's wise practice in relationship to it with mindfulness and, and insight and so forth, but we don't need to pile on. We don't need to get caught up in these second dart reactions like helpless outrage or aggrieved contempt. I think that's where the, the lesson is and where the wisdom is so much, is just to watch that movement, first dart mm. to second dart. 
and get gradually more and more in real time that you're practicing skillfully with the first dart without letting second darts occupy you. To push on this a little bit, a certain amount of helpless outrage or a certain amount of aggrieved contempt or a certain amount of these sort of uh, exemplars of negative emotions, to put it a certain kind of way, is pretty natural and normal and understandable in the life of a person. Um, those are all experiences that we're probably going to have at some mm -hmm. point. And yeah. they are natural and understandable and I think honorable responses in some ways to certain kinds of situations out in the world. When yeah. I see something that I look at and I just go, wow, this is horrible and inappropriate and it shouldn't be this way, mm -hmm. then those emotions are going to arise in me. Yeah. First starts. First starts. And then the question, just as you're saying, Dad, is what do you do with them? Yep. You know, what do they motivate inside of you? Do they motivate you to a place where you can be strong and centered and make positive change? Do they motivate you to panic? Do they motivate you to get small in your life and say, I don't want to feel those feelings ever again, so I'm just going to withdraw from this system? What does it motivate? And, and for me, that's really the question is like, what's the coping response? And mm -hmm. is it a good coping response or a problematic one? Mm -hmm. Exactly right. Exactly right. And as you know, stress itself has a quality of contraction in it and a, a sense of being really identified with and hijacked by the reaction, right? When we are identified with and hijacked by our negatively uh, emotional or emotionally negative reactions to things, that's really bad for the body-mind mm. over the long haul. Uh, and it actually also primes us to uh, uh, get into conflicts with others. I can just be aware of the times when uh, your mom and I have been watching uh, some kind of political TV show, news, let's say, and getting really aggravated, each of us, I'm sure, but what we're seeing out there on the screen um, or happening 3,000 miles away from our home. And then we turn off the TV and we get up and we're just a little more primed for being irritable with each other, with each other. And then we start to function as lightning rods for each other, for the reactivity that we've been brewing inside through these stress reactions. So among some of the many negative consequences of stress. So talking about kind of anxiety and stress, uh, when you experience yourselves as becoming in that state, overly yeah. stressed, overly anxious, overly afraid, overly overwhelmed. Yeah. What are some of the key practices that you do yourself or you mm -hmm. recommend to other people that help you get out of that state of just higher reactivity? I go right to the body, mm. slow down, breathe, and then widen your view. Mm -hmm. And we talked about recently these 10 lessons from the road of life uh, five for you, five for me. I, I feel like I should have gotten two thirds of the lessons because I've had more road wear. It's <laughs> I've had true. More road it's true. burn. <laughs> we got a two to one but, ratio of road. But you know, okay, okay, maybe you're twice as wise as I am, so you get equal number of lessons. <laughs> but anyway, the, your lessons were pretty good. One of them oh, I thanks, put Dan, in. Thanks. Yeah, was widen your view, see the big mm. picture, widen the hole. And neurologically, when we go out to the sense of our body as a whole or the situation as a whole or the visual field as a whole. All these various things do good things for us neurologically. They pull us out of contracted, compartmentalized stress reactions and help us feel less self-preoccupied and take in more information about the big picture. So those are, those are three right there. Slow down, breathe, see the big picture. That really helps. I also, as a longtime guy in wilderness and so on, I just wanna zero in on, am I gonna live through this moment? Am I basically mm. okay? Or mm -hmm. are my kids basically okay? Is the house not burning down? You know, I reassure myself. I think reassurance is an, is an extremely underrated positive emotion. It's very primal in us. It's, it's a feeling of, whew, dodge that bullet, or oh, back safe, safe now. That feeling is really important for us. So I would say that, and then also warming the heart where you feel just befriended by people in ways that are real. You know, you feel mm -hmm. your own... Uh, caring, uh, that's very important as well to bring in. Not just that you've, that in this instant you're not dying, in this moment you're not drowning. That's very important to track. It's also really important to track that uh, you're a loving relational being. So, so those are my go-tos. Huh? How about you? For me, part of it is about, and I feel like I've already said this a little bit, but appreciating 
that in some situations, stress is an appropriate response for starters. First start. When you're in, to use your example of you talked about a burning house a second ago, when you're in the burning house and you're freaking out and you run out of the house, it would be kind of insane to think to yourself, wow, I really got too stressed out there. Right. (laughs) Like like that would just be an irrational response, right? And to kind of stretch the metaphor a little bit, let's say you run out of the house and you're standing on the lawn. So like you're technically okay. Thinking to yourself, okay, now it's time for me to be just perfectly zen would be both ridiculous and frankly kind of inappropriate. Mm-hmm, totally true. And I think that for me, that just helps move me in a, a more positive relationship with the experience that I was having and kind of like honoring it and going, yeah, that was really real. I mean, again, this is not a political podcast. I don't want to get too political here, but this is a election where a lot of people, I think rightly, felt that it represented an existential threat to them. Exactly as you're saying, the small animal on the savanna, where whether mm. it was to their rights or to their livelihood, or mm. you know, we have a pandemic going on right now. Like there's a very, very real physical threat, and our responses, scaled up at the political national level, have immense consequences for individual people in their day to day, real, lived, felt life. Yeah, and when you kind of think about it that way. Man, it sort of makes sense to have a freaky couple of days in there during, you know, the biggest political firestorm of the last four years or what, however you want to kind of think about it, the big firework finale of the last four years of politics. And when I move into that, it almost allows me to look back over the last week and kind of go, you know what? maybe that wasn't so irrational. Or, you know what, maybe that was kind of an appropriate response. And almost hold it more lightly, more um, more lovingly toward myself, more self-acceptancely, because I don't get into this weird psychodrama that I think people who get really into self-help can kind of get into sometimes, where it becomes about like, oh, was I was I uh, practiced enough in that moment? Or, oh, mm. you know, I'm going to get down on myself now for not being able to just really stay like calm under all circumstances. No, man, like we're all going to do that sometimes. It's okay. Mm. And for me, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but that really does kind of help me move more toward calm ultimately. Understanding that, yeah, my reaction was rational. I took okay things around it. I did my best to keep myself feeling safe and happy and healthy given the circumstances. But yeah, I got activated. And sometimes we're going to get activated in life. And then it's about what do we do next? Indeed. You know, another little flow I personally recommend and I use myself is deal with the bad, turn to the good, Mm -hmm. take in the good. Yeah, this is a favorite of yours for sure. Yeah, again and again and again. And it starts with the first noble truth of suffering. You know, yeah. put out the fire, <laughs> just deal with the bad, whatever whatever it is in real ways, deal with it. Uh, while also recognizing the good that is real, that is alongside that. And as we have a chance to be aware of the good that is real and, and have beneficial experiences in proportion to that that are also real, Help yourself to grow from those experiences, heal from them, learn from them, internalize them so they increasingly dwell within you. That movement is so important, including the ways uh, that it helps us appreciate that we become more effective in dealing with the bad of all kinds out in the world, in the physical body, in your own mind. I mean bad pragmatically as that which creates harm, suffering, or both for yourself and or others. We become more effective in dealing with the bad the more that we grow the good inside. And also, Mm -hmm. the more that we grow the good in the physical body and out there in the world. You could apply my little sequence here, one, two, three, in three domains, world, body, mind. Completely Mm -hmm. true. And there's no uh, replacement for action out in the world, including the ways in which that that increases individual well-being and reduces human suffering and aids justice. There's no replacement for that. And also, uh, as we become happier ourselves, as we grow the good in our minds, let's say, as well as the ways we might promote physical health over here inside ourselves, uh, we become more effective in growing the good out in the world. And it's not either or. People sometimes represent it as a, as a mm. dichotomy. So yeah, that's kind of, for me, a really important summary. And within all that, as you talk about it, we've talked about it, accepting the limits of our influence, Mm, just mm -hmm. realizing that, you know, it's a mighty river, 
you might be able to offer a gallon or two it, or a liter or two along its way. But how that river of reality unfolds in your country or in your company or in your neighborhood or your family is largely due to currents and forces that are not yours. Mm, and to really mm-hmm. appreciate that, right? Ring the bells you still can ring, but also understand there's a limit to your influence. For me, the flip side of accepting the limit of your influence, which is, if you've listened to the podcast for a little while, you probably know is kind of a favorite topic of mine. The flip side is also sort of a favorite topic, which is finding the places where you can have a lot of influence. Yeah, in the local, usually. Yep, absolutely. Most of the time in the local. And if we're still having the political conversation, maybe that's canvassing during a more normal period of time. We're going door to door is a bit more appropriate. (laughs) Maybe it's working for a phone bank. Maybe it's, if you have the means to do so, donating to a candidate that you like. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe it's just having really honorable and honest and open conversations with people in your social circle that you have disagreements with Mm -hmm. uh, and and seeing if you can have some soft influence on them in a positive way, just by even being a good representative for the group of people that they disagree with. Yeah. That's a really important point, by the way, actually. I'm glad you underlined that, the very last one. Yeah, walk yeah it was something that we talked about a lot during uh, the conversation, again, that I had with Celeste that I've mentioned a bunch of times on the podcast. But mm-hmm. a lot of what we do, in my opinion, when we influence other people toward a viewpoint is we just give them an example of somebody who disagrees with them who isn't a horrible person. Yeah, Because a lot of the time what happens, particularly national level media, mm-hmm. stuff like that, is that we, we only learn about caricatures. Mm. You know, we only learn about for instance, the welfare queen, to use the language of Reagan. And most of the time, that stereotype is just pretty far from what the real people look like, actually. Um, and the more that we can give people an example of the real people, I think that it just becomes so much easier to find empathy. Um, so that's a real way that I think that we can have influence out in the world. If you like being well, I think you'll really enjoy the Dr. John Delaney show. Dr. John's show was recently in the top five of all podcasts on Apple Podcasts, which is just an incredible accomplishment, and it speaks to how much value people get out of the show. Dr. John has a PhD in counseling, and he's been working with people for over 20 years, and the show has a very cool format. Real people call into the show, and he walks them through how to navigate a tough situation related to common challenges. Maybe it's something related to their relationships, anxieties, or emotional well-being. He explores a lot of topics that are similar to what we talk about on this podcast, but while we can sometimes be pretty theoretical in nature, the format of John's show just creates a lot of directness and practicality to it. I think it's actually a really nice compliment to what we do here on Being Well. No matter what you're going through, the Dr. John Delaney Show is here for you. And if you ever need some advice, you know who to call. Listen to the Dr. John Delaney Show wherever you get your podcasts, or follow the link on our website. As somebody who's really struggled with skin issues like acne over the course of my life, I know just how great it is to not stress about what's going on with your skin. That's why I'm excited to tell you about today's sponsor, OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy while looking and feeling your best. No complicated routine, no multi-step protocols, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS01 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to work with the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And as somebody who's used plenty of complicated routines in the past, I love the simplicity of using their OS01 face topical peptide. Just cleanse, pat your skin dry, and apply it twice daily. Get started today with 15% off using code BEINGWELL at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code BEINGWELL. After your purchase, they'll ask you where you came from, and please support the show and tell them that we sent you. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you do if you had an extra hour in your day? We're all looking for more time, but time for what? It's easy to waste time doing the things that don't really matter, and it can sometimes feel like we never have time for what does. Learning what we really value and making it a priority in our lives is something therapy can help us with. As you probably already know, I'm a huge believer in the power of therapy, and working with a therapist has made a huge difference in my life. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. 
It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeingWell today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BeingWell. It's really funny you say that for us because one of the things that I alluded to in the very beginning that's been extremely helpful for me literally in just the last 48 hours of kind of reflection and, and, and shifting, things shifting inside me about all this, is to underline what I could summarize as see what is true. And whether it's in science or in personal practice, the bedrock, the bedrock principle, going back to my dad's roots, right, in the ranch, the bedrock principle is see what is true. Mm -hmm. It's foundational. Recognize the truth. The root of the word for science is clear seeing. The root of the word for Buddha is clear knowing, clear seeing. Same thing. See what is true. And yeah, we are fallible in what we see what is true, and people see different pieces. But whatever it is, you're seeing what is true. This is why it's really important, whether it's in your own life immediately in the local or whether it's something you're thinking about the global, it's so important to be attentive, as you bring up many, many times, to the tendency to, of confirmation bias, the tendency to live inside our particular frames of reference and to deflect information that exposes us to, in the term, cognitive dissonance. As Piaget put it, uh, there are two kinds of uh, learning. One is called assimilation, where you incorporate new information into an existing frame without changing the frame, and the other being one in which you make your frame budge. That's accommodation, mm -hmm. where your frame changes. Yeah. And I think it's really important to continually challenge the frames that things are put in and to keep emphasizing what is true. And one of the things that I think is the hallmark of our political discourse, and you can see it also at the level of uh, individuals and, and couples and families and companies, what could be called grievance theater, where people are competing for whose grievances are more valid, more consequential, and often it's not even about changing anything substantive at the policy level. It's about making a living sometimes in grievance theater, politically. Yeah. And I think that it's really helpful to recognize that a lot of what we see in the political sphere is grievance theater. One of the functions of it that's very interesting is to elevate one kind of grievance as a way of neutralizing or closing the gap between a extremely inflated grievance to uh, to somehow match an actual enormous grievance. Like, for example, when white people, let's say, talk about feeling miffed or aggravated about cancel culture and making an enormous deal out of that, I recognize the excesses of cancel culture. I see some of that. But to equate the excesses of, let's say, cancel culture to a 400-year history of slavery and white supremacy, it's just not the same. Those are facts. Those are not comparable grievances. Anyway, so part of what's been helpful for me in terms of seeing what's true is just to see some of the ways these things are true and to take a breath and to realize, yeah, people believe all kinds of stuff. What's actually true? Is mm -hmm. COVID a hoax? Uh, sorry, no. You know, we, what is it, 140,000 new cases yesterday? You know, these things are really true. So, anyway, I'll finish my rant here by just emphasizing the importance of taking refuge in what is true and being willing continually to update your model with new information. Nate Silver would thoroughly approve, you know, good Bayesian, <laughs> boy, good Bayesian theorem here, <laughs> updating your priors. Good, good, good. But with, at the end of the day, see what is true. That's the mm. foundational bedrock refuge. No, I, I 
think that's great. And I think that's a great framing of a lot of the conversations that have been happening socially over the last little while. And to your point, just some of the the obvious imbalances between them and the the false comparisons and the both sidesism and all of that that can be really rampant right now. So to kind of steer gently back toward our general topic area, which is wellness and mental health and all of that good stuff, there are a lot of people who are really happy today. There are also a lot of people, being real about it, who are really bummed out today. And I think that you can scale that up to the year as a whole. There are people who have had good years during this year that the common discourse has been that this is like the worst year ever, almost literally, uh, in, in kind of modern times. Yeah. And even among that, there have been a lot of people who've had really good years. There are a lot of people who got married this year or had a mm-hmm. child this year or had some big breakthrough in their work life this year, you know, whatever. I don't think that that's most people, but that's a real demographic of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that I've been seeing a bit and talked about a bit with friends is how it can be hard to be celebratory when other people are unhappy. Yeah. And it can be hard to be unhappy when other people are celebratory. Mm. And I just wanted to kind of talk with you about that topic as a whole and how you think about it and work with it. It's an incredibly deep topic, and it gets at some very moral questions about the degree to which it's really important to let ourselves care about the suffering of others, including suffering that we cannot do anything to relieve. And to what extent are we allowed to make a good cup of tea, watch something interesting on television, while at the same time, truly, people are starving around the world, even close to home. Even as we speak, terrible injustices are occurring. By what right do we withdraw our attention from that for even a nanosecond? You know, it gets to a very deep place, right? Thinking my own personal way through it, it's been helpful to appreciate almost like a pre-flight checklist, different boxes. Number one box, are you doing by your values your own moral best? Are you doing what you can in your corner of the world, in the local, to reduce injustice and reduce suffering and to step into, as John Lewis, bless his memory, put it, good trouble? To what extent are you doing that? Know that you're doing good. I think there are probably two major fundamental references, you know, that you're standing in what is actually true with a good heart. Mm. And to know that in yourself, whatever craziness is happening around you and whatever crazy stuff people are saying around you, can you know truly that you are rested in truth and you're rested in your own good heart? That's deep, deep resort. And to come back to that multiple times a day, the felt sense of, no, I, I really... I am grounded in reality. <laughs> I do mm-hmm. see what is true, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I, and I wish the best. And that is the case about me. Not in a pompous, arrogant, self-congratulatory, narcissistic way, but in a sense of honest relief and refuge within ourselves. So that part. Mm. Second, realize that, of course, if you suffer more, that will not make them suffer less. And if you live better or, or if you feel better, I'll say it that way, if you feel better, that will not make them feel worse. It's decoupled. Mm-hmm. It's also really helpful to realize that people's lives are complicated. Let's suppose someone in the aggregate has a fortunate, advantaged life with maybe a lot of good things about it that they've actually earned as well, fine. Then take another person, let's say, who's had a quite disadvantaged, unprivileged life. But even in these two different lives, there's complexity almost always. There are bad things, to say it a certain way, that are happening in the life of someone who's had a really good year, and there are good things that are happening in the life of someone who's had a really bad year. All of it is true. Seeing what is true means seeing the whole mosaic of reality inside and outside. And so a person who's had a really bad year can be aided by being aware of what is still good. And a person who's had a really good year can still be honest about facing what does still feel like an unfulfilled longing inside them or what is an issue they haven't really addressed. You know, that's part of what's true. So you 
do that part. And then the last thing I'll just finish on is this, for me, classic combination of compassion and equanimity. Mm. It's both. It's to have a heart that is really, really open. This is an aspiration. It's an aspiration of practice to have a heart that really remains open, in, in which includes being able to regard others as thou who are also one's opponents. We can open our heart really wide, that's the compassion part, while also retaining a fundamental equanimity deep mm. down inside, or maybe in the, f- the way of talking about it is the field in which things occur is inherently undisturbed. It's inherently untroubled by the troubles passing through it. Uh, and over time, they serve each other. The more, I can speak personally, the more you deepen in practice in terms of depth of equanimity, the wider your heart can open, the more mm. you can mm-hmm. really, really feel and be, ah, oh, the sorrows of the world. And weirdly, the more that you open your heart without resistance to the sorrows of the world, the more stable you become in your own equanimity. And that's a wonderful way to articulate it and a great summary of a lot of what you were saying there. I think that it's fundamentally moral and honorable and also mentally healthy to have somewhere between one second and 10 minutes a day, depending on the day, where you come into a real clear seeing of the, uh, to put it a certain kind of way, to be frank, of the injustices and horrors of the world. I think that's really morally honorable, where you just come really clearly into that seeing and understanding and viewing of it. Mm -hmm. And I also think that it's okay to do that inside of still having a good experience in your life. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's immoral in some way. I don't think that it negates the act of seeing the injustices of the world or the things you didn't like or the people who are unhappy to also at the same time have that experience of whatever it is. I like the room I'm sitting in. I like the friends that I'm hanging out with. I like the food that I'm eating. Mm -hmm. Like that can all be true alongside that clear seeing, alongside that realization, exactly as you were saying. And, And just to kind of sum it up, on the Instagram, I posted something recently where it basically said something along the lines of, it's okay if this was your worst year ever. It's okay if this was your best year ever. It, it's all okay. It's okay. Yeah. And it's okay for these things to be existing simultaneously for different people. Yeah. And part of that is about kind of differentiating what I would call the core of our experience from what we project outside of it toward other people compassionately. Mm. So here's what I mean. I think that there's kind of this view that if you're having a good day, that makes it harder to be compassionate to people. I can be really full and happy and having a good day inside of myself and still absolutely have a deep and authentic experience of compassion, mutual sorrow, whatever it might be with somebody who I'm talking with who is not having a good day. Yeah. And you can scale that up to the level of a year or a lifetime just as well, I think. And that difference between the core of the experience, the core of the self, and the relating that we do with the exterior of somebody else, I think is actually a really key distinction here. And it's been really personally useful for me in terms of framing this whole question. Hmm. A metaphor that's just very real for me, it goes to the classic notion of the ocean and the waves, right? So each person's life is like a wave in the sea, and it exists. That wave is existing, and it is distinct from the waves alongside it, while simultaneously the nature of all waves is water. Mm, mm-hmm. So we have these two truths that sit alongside each other. One is that ways, the truth of differentiation, that the causes and conditions that led to the manifestation of each of those two distinct waves are different. The waves are different. And it's also true that we are profoundly interdependent. We interbe, we inter-are, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it. And to be able to live in the simultaneity of both of those truths is practice in an ongoing mm. kind of way. 
Yeah, another great reflection. I think another very, uh, very Rick reflection. The all our waves are water, uh, oneness, I, allness, the whole thing. And I want to credit Jamal Yogis for the yes. phrase "all our waves yep. are water." But yeah, it's true. No, it's it's a wonderful reflection, and he's a super cool guy as well. So I'll link to some of his work in the description of today's podcast. Oh, great! I think that this has been, at least for me, a, a pretty calming, settling. Zend out episode in a lot of ways and a good reflection on the last week. I'm sure that there are also a lot of people who are listening who are still feeling pretty stressed out, who are maybe worried about something else in their life, whatever it might be. It's a high anxiety time on a lot of levels, politically and otherwise. Uh, and we don't normally do this on the podcast, but I was just sort of, I don't know, it, it felt appropriate. I was wondering if you'd be down for doing a kind of quick practice of calming, mm-hmm. centering, relaxation, whatever you'd like to do here. Well, I'm really touched that you invited me, and I'd like to offer something that I've been doing a lot lately. Uh, I think of it as the five breaths exercise, mm. and it'll take a little more than five breaths for me to walk people through it, but it's something you can come back to again and again, and you can just literally do it, one, two, three, four, five, in Great. the breaths, or just the first three if you want, and I'll, I'll do it, and I'll do it with you. Yeah, so if it's appropriate, you can follow along as you're listening. Yeah, and if you listen to this on recording, you can pause if you want to take more time with this. And and if you don't want to do it, you don't need to do it. You could do it with your eyes open <laughs> or closed. Uh, if you're doing this while driving, be especially careful uh, to <laughs> be aware of the trucks around you. So here it, here it is. So first one, oh, one quick preliminary. For some people, being aware of the breath is uh, not good for them because maybe due to a trauma mm-hmm. history, it's mm-hmm. uncomfortable. So if you don't want to use your breath, you could just pick something different that's reassuring uh, to focus on, like, like the feeling of gratitude or a sensation elsewhere in your body or mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. sense of the environment you're in or some object that you find reassuring. Like I can see a cloud on my window right now that's quite lovely. So for whatever it is for you. Okay, here we go. So first breath, breathing while feeling your chest as a whole. The chest as a whole with many sensations inside it. Breathing at your own pace. In the second breath, breathing while feeling caring. Uh, Focusing on the feeling of caring, simple feeling of friendliness towards someone, perhaps compassion, perhaps love, maybe appreciation. Being aware of uh, the sensations around your heart, if you like, maybe with a hand on your heart. Breathing while feeling caring. Coming back again and again to the simple feeling, not so much the story or the complications of relationships, simply the feeling, breathing while feeling caring. And then in the third breath, maybe a little more challenging, breathing while feeling cared about. Again, Focusing on the feeling, not the complication, the story, the movie, the, instead the feeling of being appreciated or liked or included or even loved. Breathing while feeling cared about. Could be as simple as the sense of being with a group of friends or people who you feel are your teammates in life, breathing while feeling cared about.
And then the fourth breath, breathing while feeling peaceful, allowing a calming, perhaps being aware of a place inside that is peaceful, tranquil, a stillness maybe. This is a peacefulness that can include all kinds of emotions, all kinds of sounds. It's like a space of peacefulness. Perhaps a sense of calm strength, breathing while feeling peaceful. It could be a quality of letting go. And then the fifth breath, breathing while feeling content. A sense of enoughness in the moment, maybe a sense of gratitude, knowing that you can feel content while still solving problems and dreaming big dreams. It's like a releasing of frustration, a releasing of drivenness, a sense of this is enough. It's nice to have more. This is enough already. Breathing while feeling content. And that's it. Those are the five breaths. Uh, if we had a little more time and people might want to do it on their own, they can literally do one breath right after the other, uh, five breaths right after the other, each one of them being breathing while feeling your chest as a whole, breathing while feeling caring, breathing while feeling cared about, breathing while feeling peaceful, breathing while feeling content. Uh, in addition to whatever psychological benefit you might have experienced doing this, uh, these breaths and the structure of them are grounded in good brain science uh, that you can explore in other places, including in the, the show notes for the Patreon people <laughs> <laughs> for this podcast. Thank you for the plug, Dad. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, that was really lovely. I think that was great. Man, we should maybe do that more often. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. I was really touched that you invited it. Yeah, yeah, no, I, th I thought it was great and it just felt really appropriate for the, for the conversation we were having and kind of the moment we were going through here. Yeah. So thank you for sharing the practice. I hope that people really enjoyed it. And I think that that feels like a really wonderful place to kind of bring this episode to a close today. I should add, in any kind of practice like that, where you're deliberately trying to get in touch with something, mm, that mm -hmm. it's all about authenticity. If, yeah, totally. if you can't get in touch with it, it's it's okay. Uh, just keep trying, you know, then you'll get more in touch with it over time. Um, and uh, alongside whatever you're getting in touch with that's real, like maybe peacefulness is real, around which is a lot of worry about something. Mm, both are, mm -hmm. both can be true. They, they don't negate yeah, each other, as you pointed totally. out earlier. Okay, good. Yeah, and alongside that, one of the most useful places of learning for me around any kind of practice is, sure, doing the practice, but also what are the aspects of the practice that I find challenging? Mm. Or what are the experiences, sensations, emotions that rise to the forefront of my brain when I'm focusing my attention on a particular area of my body? Mm. Like, what's the story there? What is the experience I'm having? So I've, I've had uh, some experiences where I'm doing a practice and I get really sad. Yeah. And it can be kind of a learning moment. Like, oh, where's not, not to say, oh, that's wrong. I shouldn't be sad. I should be focusing on my gratitude or focusing on the chest as a whole or whatever. But instead to say, wow, that sadness is really real. Let's sit with that sadness for a moment. Where's that sadness coming from? Mm. And that inquiry could be really personally useful and even pretty profound in some cases, at least for me personally. Fantastic. 
Great. Okay, so let's do quick wrap up on the conversation. This should be pretty brief, but to kind of summarize it. Today we talked about anxiety, stress, dealing with having a good year when other people are having a bad year and vice versa and kind of holding all of that in our mind and our heart at the same time. We began with stress and responses to stress. One of the things that we clarified in the early going was that there's a difference between experiencing a stressor and having the experience of stress in the body. There are stressors that cause us to have reactions that are natural and normal out in the world, whether it's a burning building or you anticipating some horrible political outcome that you don't want to have happen. There's going to be a natural response to that. And then the question is, okay, what do we do next? How do we, in essence, respond to that natural response that we have? And alongside that, There are times where it's really appropriate to experience stress. Uh, As I said earlier, if you run out of a burning building, you're not going to go full zen the moment afterward. There's going to be a long tail to these experiences. That's okay. And at least for me, honoring that and kind of honoring the experience I had as authentic and legitimate can often help me move into a greater sense of calm acceptance uh, in the aftermath of it. We then talked for a while about ways to weather the storm, including, as Rick said, taking refuge in the goods that we do know in our life, whether they're little goods like the cup of coffee you enjoy or big goods. A friend who had something really wonderful happen to them, uh, some really positive event in your own life, even amidst the storm that's going on outside. And for me, one of the big themes of the episode was how we can hold those good experiences, those good events, those truly authentic, positive things that happen to us alongside real, legitimate, compassionate, and caring for the experiences that people are having that are not positive, that are problematic, that are representative of larger systemic social problems that we're still dealing with as a people, as a culture, as a country, however you want to think about it. And how having a good day doesn't invalidate that and indeed can give us the resources to marshal ourselves to be a greater contributor to those causes as they continue hopefully to progress toward a, I mean, I'd like to think I'm an optimistic guy toward a hopefully wonderful resolution at some point in the, again, hopefully not too distant future. So that was our conversation today on anxiety, calm, stress, and so on. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it. If you took a moment to leave a rating, a positive review, subscribe to it, tell a friend about it, the whole kid and caboodle. Also, we're on all the social medias. We're on Instagram at beingwellpodcast. Uh, Rick has his own profile. I have mine. I'm also on Twitter. I don't post very often, but Rick is on Twitter and posts much more frequently than I do. And we include links to all of those things in the description of today's podcast. Finally, if you've really been enjoying the show and you'd like to find another way to support us, you can do so on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. I put together pretty elaborate show notes. We're actually about to record a Q&A episode that we're going to release on there that's just for our subscribers where we answer questions from them. And uh, yeah, it's becoming a really great community and I'm really enjoying doing the work for that outlet. So If you've been enjoying the show, you can come over and join us over there. So that's it for today's episode. Again, thanks so much for taking the time to listen, and we'll talk to you soon. 